TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Listeners of the Bike Nerds Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Kyle, what have you been listening to lately? So I just started uh, a new story called Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. Uh, I'm not very far into it, so I can't give you like a good sense of what it's about or even if it's good, but it came rec- <laughs> it came recommended from another podcast that I listened to. Um, and so, you know, I just decided to take a break from the Star Wars for a moment and uh, dig into this. I respect that. I look forward to hearing about, you know, what, what it looks like. Yeah. I mean, like. it's like, it's like this guy basically like wakes up and the life that he knew is no longer the life that he's sort of experiencing. So I, I don't know what it's about because I think the main character doesn't even know what it's about. I like that. I actually may, I may read that. Yeah. You can borrow it if you want. Thank you. Well, I want to read it, but. I have it in print form as well. Oh, look at you. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM for your free audiobook. What's the word, Wagon Shoots? Man, you know, we are gearing up for some travel. Um, you know, by the time this episode gets released, you and I will have already been reunited in Canada. Yay! Um, you know, that, that famous country where reunions happen, Canada. And uh, we're, we're going to be enjoying some fall weather in Vancouver. I don't know if you've taken a look at the uh, predictions for this coming week. Uh, have I? I bought a nice <laughs> lightweight sweater today just in excitement for and, the experience. Well, well, you were excited about it. I was tetri- petrified. I was trying to figure out how many jackets I needed to bring uh, to Canada with me because I'm feeling it's <laughs> going to be chilly. But it's going to be beautiful, I think. Um and we're going to be riding some bikes. We're going to be talking about bikes. You know, we're going to be there at the Pro Walk, Pro Bike, Pro Place conference together, holding it down Memphis style. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the whole conferences. This will be my first Pro Walk, Pro Bike, Pro Place. And I'm just ready to learn a lot and meet a bunch of new people and also explore Vancouver. Yeah, and while we're there, you know, you and I are going to be, we're going to have our uh, microphones with us. We're going to be recording some interviews while I'm there. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of excited to sort of, you know, have guests live and in person again. Uh, we've been doing, oh. the, we've been doing the telephone thing for a while now, but it'll be nice to like actually sit in front of someone and have a conversation with them. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to, to humans in person. <laughs> uh, you have like a super early day though, like a 6 a.m. flight though, right? Yes, I am currently at my office frantically but productively getting my life in order before I leave town and then 
I'll get to the Memphis airport around, you know, 5 o'clock a.m. <laughs> and start my travels to the other part of the country. That is – continent, some, really, the other part of the continent. Yeah, you know, that's something that's pretty common from flying out of Memphis. Like, you have to, like, to get somewhere at a decent hour, you have to leave on that 6 a.m. flight, no matter yeah. where you're going to. And it's just one of the uh, realities of uh, the Memphis airport. But I'm going to get to Vancouver at, like, 11.30 in the morning, so – Oh, I mean, I have a whole day. It's like 15, 15 hours of flying. Yeah. Only four hours passing real time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I'll be there shortly after you then. So we'll, we should, we'll, we'll connect, uh, you know, first thing, uh, in the morning. It's going to be pretty. And we're sitting at a really cool apartment with really great views. Vancouver has bike share now. So I'm looking forward to, they have smooth. That's their bike vendor. Ooh. So I'm looking forward to test out. There, it's a smart bike program, so that should be interesting. Don't forget to bring your helmet. I know. It's like a mandatory helmet law in Vancouver. I know. I have to go find mine. I don't even know where it's at. Yeah, I know. So better that than wear somebody else's like sweaty helmet while you're there. Yeah, I'd rather bring my own. I like my helmet. Yeah. Thank you for the reminder because I totally wouldn't have brought it. Yeah, I. this is like unbelievable, but I've actually already packed my bag. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, I think it's unbelievable. But no, 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 no. It should be. It should be surprising. I'm. I'm typically like a person that packs their bag approximately 20 minutes before I head out the door. Really? Yeah. And so today I feel highly accomplished. You um, actually sound more accomplished than usual. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've just been. I feel prepared. So the bag is ready to go. The only thing I have to yet to pack right is the microphone that I'm talking into right now. Look at that. Yeah. Do I have to pack the microphone? You do have to you do have to pack your microphone, yeah. Gosh, that really messes up my the feng shui of your bag? My feng shui of my bag, but I'll I'll figure it out. You could just put it in the box and carry it with you if you wanted to. Like carry it under my arm? Yeah. Tie maybe like tie a string around it. <laughs> that can be like my like my purse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I may Ma'am, is that. that a is that a microphone? We, we need to inspect that. Oh um, gosh! No, no, don't worry. I, I've taken the microphone through TSA before. It's no, it's no problem. But they will say like, "Is that a microphone?" And your answer should be yes. And another great thing about the conference is we're going to get to reunite with a bunch of people we've had on the show. Yeah, I've I've actually people are emailing me all week long. Like, are you going to be in Vancouver? It's like, yeah, we'll be there. And, you know, and also some, some new friends of the podcast, uh, are also going to be there. People that we've been trying to hook up with for interviews for a little while now. We've been able, unable to coordinate schedules, but we found out that all these people were going to be in Vancouver. So, uh, we're going to have a good time, I think. Very excited. Will Doe Lee be in Vancouver? Who's you know, I don't know if Doe's going to be there or not, but I've just re-listened to the podcast as I was sort of going back through and, and editing and, taking out all the the weird sounds in it. And the interview was great. Doe was so superb and he offers a lot of like really great insight um, from the perspective, you know, of somebody who sort of studies the relationships of people and how they interact, interact with their environment. And uh, you know, like I said, I listened to the whole thing again and it was, it was as uh, enthralling as it was to record it in real time. It was really great to, to, you know, meet him and talk to him in person about, I think, a really interesting perspective on, you know, bike riders that people don't necessarily identify as 
bike riders and really aren't giving a voice to kind of a certain segment of people who are using bikes for their work um, and livelihood. So I was, I want to add one thing. There's also another special guest on the podcast. As I was listening back, I realized that uh, Miss Kitty, uh, the older cat that we keep here, here at my house, was especially like lively that day. And so there's a lot of like uh, little meows in the background that you can hear. Really? Yeah, I think it just adds like another uh, dimension of personality. Um, and Miss Kitty was – I talked to her afterwards. She was really happy to have been involved with the podcast and uh, you know would like to come back <laughs> on again in the future. Well, and she has an open invitation. <laughs> She's here right now. She's like <laughs> pulling at me. So every time I do this, she just she immediately comes over and starts to mess with me. So, uh, but she was ever present in the recording. So that's just a little jewel for uh, for those that are listening. You can hear Miss Kitty's commentary in the background. Awesome. Let's hit it. How are you guys doing? Good. Great. Thanks for taking time out of your morning to chat with us. Oh, of course, of course. It's good to talk with you guys. <laughs> are you calling from New York City? I am. I am. Uh, where, are you, where are you all at? I'm in Memphis, uh-huh. and Kyle is calling from Boulder. So we're really, I think, <laughs> three time zones, which feels like a first. <laughs> oh, it must um, be really early for you, uh, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, a little more. It's expensive. only early because of the night that I had last night. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, but you know, it's not. It's nine a.m. So um, I've had my pancakes already. Uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, so, no, I think we were connected with you through Na- our friend Naomi mm-hmm. in New Orleans. But if you could give us a little background on, on what you're doing in New York City, that would be, a, that would be fantastic to kick off. Uh, sure. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm a PhD candidate at the uh, City University of New York uh, Graduate Center in Environmental Psychology. Um, and I'm working on a research project with the Biking Public Project. Um, and if you're familiar with them, they're, they're a uh, grassroots organization that's working to uh, help advocate and work with underrepresented cyclists. Um, and so the specific project we have right now is to work with um, uh, immigrant food delivery cyclists here in New York City. Um, and if, if you've ever been to New York City, you, you, you see a, a ton of uh, delivery guys on bikes everywhere, uh, all over the city. Uh, a lot of them are recent immigrants um, and and so there's not much uh, in terms of uh, the mainstream bicycling uh, movement um, that knows much about these, uh, these cyclists. Uh, a lot of the conversations and advocacy and planning around bicycling doesn't, um, hasn't uh, you know, involved um, their, their knowledge, their experiences. So, so our project is really to try to understand you know, what, what, are they, um, what are the issues and concerns that they deal with on the street. Uh, and they're, they're often a very... Um, different sort of set of concerns than uh than what we might imagine um that's being represented in the uh, in the mainstream bicycling movement how did the project identify immigrant delivery um bikers as a highlight of the project well uh so i think it uh it happened in a couple different ways um the biking public project started a few years back and it started out out of um um kind of this need to see that uh, there weren't a lot of groups, um, at least especially in New York, uh, that center around uh, 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 you know, cyclists of color, for example, um, and so um, uh, working cyclists, what have you. And then um, at the same time, I was uh, beginning my, uh, my graduate studies, and I had been looking at, at bicycling um, as, a, as a research topic. And I actually did a, um, a uh, kind of a, 
a, sh um, a shorter research project earlier on a, on a bike to work event in uh, Lake Tahoe in California. And I was kind of uh, kind of digging around a little bit for what might be my next project. And um, I started seeing all these articles in the local uh, local media about uh, about uh, discussions and um, uh, new ordinances being passed around uh, uh, food delivery workers. And I, I just started to notice the tenor and tone of these articles were very um, uh, very harsh and judgmental, uh, and often a lot of these articles uh, would wouldn't even uh, talk about the perspective and the context in which the workers were um, were dealing with in the streets and in their occupations. And so um, I started looking into the literature and just realized there was almost nothing written about these kind of experiences uh, of, of cycling. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I started kind of uh, digging into this a little bit and got connected with the biking public project and, um, they had been, they had just finished a, um, uh, a, uh, portrait project where they, uh, had, um, um, gone all over this, uh, all over New York city and taking, uh, beautiful portraits of the diversity of, of cycling that happens here in New York city. Uh, and we're looking to kind of figure out what their next steps were. Uh, and I got connected with them and, they had been interested in in, uh, in uh, trying to uh, connect with uh, uh, food delivery workers, and so it was kind of a it was it was good timing, I would say the least. So, uh, um, so that's kind of where we we kind of gotten started. Doe, as a as a burgeoning environmental psychologist, what's uh, what's the perspective that you sort of approach these kinds of um, this kind of advocacy from, you know, I, I'm not sure that I've ever actually met an environmental psychologist. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, to sort of, you know, what's the, uh, what's the philosophy and, you know, sort of that, that you sort of approach, um, you know, this subject matter from. Well, uh, so I, I'm not surprised, uh, environmental psychology, um, it, it's, uh, not a well-known, uh, aspect of psychology, uh, and when, most times when I mention it to people, people are like, well, you're going to give therapy to trees or something, you know, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but when, uh, at the basic core of it is basically, uh, trying to understand the, uh, interrelationship of people, uh, and their places or their spaces. So basically understanding people in their context. Um, and so that seems pretty basic, but when you look at most psychology, it, it tries to take people outside the context and try to find universal truths about people's behavior and, um, and, uh, and thinking. Uh, and we say, well, you can actually can't do that because people live in places, they live in contexts. You have to look at the historical context, you have to look at the social context, you have to look at the way the streets are designed, the rooms, spaces. So, um, and we try to understand that relationship and how um, a space can foster different sort of interactions, um, inequalities, uh, justice or injustice. Um, and uh, how people shape those spaces as well. Uh, so uh, in terms of how does this kind of bring a perspective, well, uh, it, it means that um, at least in terms of uh, bicycling, we, we, someone like me would take a, a really strong, um, strong holistic look, a very interdisciplinary look at, at bicycling. You know? um, and so you know, when, when we look at uh, food delivery cyclists, oftentimes they are recent immigrants, uh, Asian Latino, and... Um, you know, they're often um, in the media portrayed as breaking a lot of laws. They go the, the wrong way in the streets. They, they might run, run through a red light, uh, ride on a sidewalk. Um, and so 
if you kind of looked at in a very narrow perspective, you might say it's all about them being a bad person, <laughs> about making that poor individual choices. But if you kind of zoomed out to a larger contextual perspective, you might say, well, uh, they're under a lot of uh, pressure in terms of time for deliveries because they get a lot of pressure from the, the customers. They get a lot of pressure from the restaurants. They're working at a very um, precarious tip-based livelihood where they get underpaid. Uh, the streets aren't designed for the work. So instead of like zooming in on just individual behavior, you have to contextualize where people are at. And uh, so that's what my perspective would kind of bring into this work. Joe, I was reading, I think, a blog post on the Baking Public Project Tumblr page. And I was really interested in this kind of um, kind of missing the opportunity when you refer to immigrant cyclists as invisible cyclists. And there's, there's actually more than that, that because of this kind of overlying communication through the media and other circles around this kind of like bad or deviance, um, that actually, could, if you could talk more to kind of why immigrant cyclists may or may not be your traditional in- invisible cyclists? Uh, well, um, uh, I, I've never been a big fan of that term invisible cyclist, to be honest. Um, I, well, because no one's really invisible. This isn't Harry Potter. Right, that, exactly. That <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not throwing on invisibility cloaks, right? Uh, as much as uh, that might be fun, um, but uh, it, I, I think um, especially uh, 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 a lot of these workers, um, you know, a lot of the impression that people have, which is not completely untrue, is that um, a, a fair fair number of them are undocumented as well, um, and so um, I think that kind of bleeds into this impression that. Um, uh, kind of uh, impression of illegality being associated with them. Um, and so um, I, I think instead of kind of trying to um, see them as, as people and humanize uh, uh, who they are, we tend to kind of bleed over. Uh, in this one respect, um, they, uh, um, the impression is that uh, they've done something, um, uh, I guess, illegal or, uh, or not so good. And so... Uh, we 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 describe all their behavior as such, um, and so when they do something a little bit outside the norm, when they um, they uh, when they appear in the streets in uh, <laughs> in uh, wealthier neighborhoods, even um, they they're seen, I think, in a lot of ways as trespassing in spaces they aren't supposed to be in, and uh, if they do something that is um, a little bit uh, off from the social norm of uh, of what what's expected, then um, there must be something wrong. There must be something, uh, something bad about them. And it's, I, I think, um, my, my, my opinion is that we have this kind of obsession with trying to define who is a good and a bad person in our society. And I, I think we get that, um, uh, all through our lives. And instead of saying that we're all, um, essentially human beings who sometimes do good things and sometimes do bad things, you know, and, uh, that doesn't, um, for the for the most part, it doesn't make us all good or bad people. Just that uh, we're 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 much more complicated than that. And uh, I I think we tend to brush uh, certain populations um, as completely good and completely bad sometimes. And I think that leads to um, unproductive binaries, uh, and that, that they occur in the bike movement as well. Yeah, no, that, that's that's actually true for like a lot. Of, I think you're right. You know, true for a lot of things in our in our sort of modern society right republicans versus democrats blacks versus whites um 
you know, the Mets versus the Yankees. You know, <laughs> you know, there's, there's sort of like all these dichotomies that are sort of created that if you really sort of dig down deep, don't really mean a whole lot of anything. They're, they're, they're purely fictitious, but, but there are ways in which people, you know, feel, make, you know, sort of feel, um, involved in, in things that are happening on a daily basis. I, you know, I think even if we, if we want to paint the brush a, a bit broader, cyclist versus motorist, I think is a pretty uh-huh. great example of that. I can, re- I can remember, you know, sort of doing this, this exercise, uh, with people in the city of Memphis when, when they would start that, that down that kind of like, you know, this us versus them kind of, uh, thought train. But we'd often like, you know, ask people, you know, how did you get to this point today? And, you know, what kind of trips did you make? And, you know, most people were driving a car at some point during the day. But then when you point out that they were also walking, uh, when you point out that they also did, you know, this or this or that, you know, it, there's this, there's this need, I think, by humans to sort of categorize ourselves as a certain to, to, to sort of, you know, strengthen our, our own identities and to set ourselves apart from people whose identities we, we're, we don't want to associate with. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that's actually, it's actually much more complicated, right? When you, when you get down to the meat of it in terms of, you know, who we actually are as people and who we represent, um, there's actually, there's actually a lot more underneath the surface than we really want to admit. Would that, would, is that, is that a true statement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think it's not, I mean, I, it, we're all multimodal, right? So in terms of transportation, um, we're all, you know, very complex human beings. Um, and, but this, Oversimplifying, like what you're saying about dichotomies, is uh, is problematic, and um, I see this in the bike movement a lot, where there's this um, strong obsession with trying to you know, mark out who's a good bicyclist and who's a bad per- bicyclist, right? Yeah, the scoff laws. Right, the scoff laws. If only the scoff laws would stop being bad, right? Yeah. Then people would like us, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and it's, I think, much more complicated than that. And uh, and it's, uh, I don't, I think, um, I, I wonder to some extent when we say, oh, if some, if those bicyclists just stopped breaking the laws, we just contribute to this atmosphere where, uh, you know, uh, victim blaming happens when when someone does does get killed uh, on a on a bike. Um, where uh, the you know the police and the media uh, kind of revert to like oh they must have been a not wearing their helmet they must have been going the wrong way they must have been running a red light uh, without any sort of proof right mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, I I, well, I wonder if that just doesn't help you know that kind of um, thinking and it prevents uh, solidarities and and uh, collective action from kind of emerging yeah I, you know. I haven't really thought about this in too much detail, though. But you know, to what degree does did does or does I don't know what the present tense of that is. Um, to what degree do you think sort of the vehicular cycling movement played in sort of creating that dichotomy for scofflaw cycling? I'm sort of thinking about it from a perspective of vehicular cycling is about. Sorry, my cat is uh, going crazy. Uh, you know, the vehicular cycling is about the perspective that cyclists can just operate within the same right rules and regulations as the cars. We can, we can create ourselves into a mold that's of the same dichotomy as people driving cars. And therefore we're not different. We're the same. We have the same rights and the same rules. And those that sort of operate outside of that, um, uh, you know, are the, are the scoff laws here, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of the, the proliferation of vehicular cycling 
in the United States since, you know, the 1970s to the current day in some places, you know, I, I think in, in a lot of ways that, that might be a contributing factor to thinking about how traditional bike advocacy, you know, approaches, uh, these kinds of individuals. Um, I, I, yeah, I think there's a good point to that. Um, it, it's, um, it's kind of the same logic in which, um, uh, respectability politics kind of works, right? Um, if, uh, you know, if we are thinking about, uh, um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm Asian American and, um, you know, often, uh, one of the big things that confronts some Asian Americans is the model minority myth, right? And it, it's this idea that if you, uh, act, uh, more white, for example, the, you know, you'll get accrue more benefits in society, right? Uh, and so I, I think it goes along with that, but it's, it's a syst- it, you're, then you're kind of complicit in a system that wasn't built for you, right? That, uh, that privileges, uh, uh, a whole different group of people. And I think, you know, that's true in this kind of, um, idea that you should cycle like a car, uh, like a car because, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a system, it's a, it's, it's a street system that was designed and built, uh, to privilege cars. Um, and it wasn't built for you. So you're always, um, you're always aspiring to be something that you're not. Um, and while there's some elements of cycling that can be, uh, uh, similar to driving, it's just, there's nowhere near the same speed and, you know, force and, and, and bulk, you know, and, and space that's required. And so it's, it's, it's trying to, you know, wedge yourself in a system that wasn't built for you. And I, I think, that is also uh, can be an issue with uh, the problems of trying to um, force uh, kind of you know um, uh, what's it the round peg into you know the square circle or a square right or the opposite of whatever it is right yeah yeah um, it's uh, it's you know with bike share like it, the primary idea behind bike share is to um, to meet the needs of the last uh, the last mile of the commute right. Um, and that's often for white collar commuters. And so why would we expect that to necessarily work as a good design for, um, like say low, low income folks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't designed with them in, in mind. Uh, it may work in some circumstances, but, uh, it wasn't designed for, for, uh, it was designed for a certain population. So, um, you know, I, I think we have to kind of think about, uh, for whom and, 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 uh, uh, and what intent? What has the kind of reaction been from the immigrant and working cyclists that y'all have worked with as part of this project? And how did you even kind of start initially making those introductions? Uh, well, it's uh, it's it's slow going. We're we're still kind of working on this. Uh, it's a it's a struggle, uh, and partly, you know, it's um, you know, uh, I, I I I I will admit, like, I come from more privileged immigrant background than uh, uh than a lot of these cyclists and so um and so you know um our perspectives um at some level are different uh we we have uh, a couple of uh, former food delivery workers on our team but you know um it's about slowly building relationships um trying to kind of go where where uh, where where they where they are and where they where they're comfortable um um and to some extent um uh, the reactions mixed, um, and it has, it has less to do with, um, uh, I think 
when we uh, we kind of approach this project from trying to be like, okay, what are the issues that that you care about? And so, um, and so when we when we've talked to 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 the delivery workers, um, three things kind of kind of pop out. Um, one is over policing. Uh, uh, second is uh, you know street safety in terms of um, you know riding their bike on unsafe streets and uh, and uh, and their own personal safety while doing deliveries. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of being robbed or or physical assault, and uh, the last uh, piece is um, uh, the the working conditions in terms of fair pay and uh, 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 um, other things associated with that. Um, and so when we kind of approach it from when we approach cyclists talking about these issues, they uh, they generally get it. They generally uh, say like, yeah, that's that, that's good to work on. Um, but it's also kind of difficult because their um, their occupation is so uh, precarious. They they work incredibly long hours. Uh, don't they don't often have many days off. Um, so um, you know s- some of the workers we've talked to you know work ten to twelve hours a day, um, and uh, and maybe get a day or two off every couple weeks. And so that you know that is the level of like physical physical exhaustion. Um, just not wanting to do much outside of work, um, and so it's for them. Uh, it, they care, uh, but it's also hard to find time and energy to kind of uh, focus on um, what uh, kind of uh, some of these larger strategies um, that, like someone like I, might have more time to attend to. Um, and so um, we we went into a, uh, a bike shop the other day, um, and uh, we, you know we're we're talking to these uh, Chinese delivery workers and. Um, you know, and they were, re- they were like, well, yeah, we're, we're angry. We, we get these, uh, $500 tickets and we're angry about that. How can you help with, help with that right now? And there's really nothing we can do with those tickets right now. Uh, and we're, you know, um, we're trying to discuss how we want to try to, um, you know, maybe change the policies regarding that or the laws, but, uh, and they're uncertain that, um, uh, how that uh, this is, that's going to uh, help their immediate condition, and so, uh, and then others are like, no, we need to uh, organize protests and um, uh, mass gatherings. But uh, it's uh, you know, I, I think um, we're slowly building relationships, and you know, we're slowly trying to organize. But you know, it's a long process, and um, and uh, it's uh, it's not immediately obvious about what we need to be doing. So, in what ways do you think you know that this work? has applications outside of, you know, New York City's immigrant delivery cyclist population. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, like a situation like Memphis, Tennessee, where there are no delivery cyclists Mm -hmm. at all, but many of the sort of, you know, issues that you're trying to tackle through the work and through the research are probably applicable. You know, are, are, are there broader implications that you think to this work? Oh sure. Uh, I, mean, I think uh, well, in terms of uh, delivery itself, there um, I think there has been an explosion of um, uh, labor being used for uh, transportation. Like if you just look at the Uber kind of Lyft phenomenon, right? Um, and but uh, also like a lot of these um, a lot of these companies are starting to try to uh, throw a lot of money into delivery because they're I think they're seeing this as um, as a big uh, future kind of um, a money maker um, where um, uh, uh, people increasingly want things delivered for the convenience and comfort and uh, at the same time um, I think I, I wonder if they see this as a um, 
the people who do delivery as a as a kind of exploitable kind of labor force. Um, and so, uh, I think on one hand, it, I think it's um, it's a canary in the coal mine in terms of that kind of a uh, uh, kind of labor exploitation and how it manifests as um, as a um, uh, kind of harm to the to the person in terms of uh, 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 risk on the streets, in terms of uh, uh, wage exploitation, what have you. Um, but also, I think in terms of um, what we talked about, bef- uh, what I mentioned before about policing, it's uh, it's I think also it, uh, can indicate possibilities about like when we're talking about um, uh, Vision Zero and all these policies to reduce uh, you know traffic fatalities. Um, and car violence, um, you know, who is, who's bearing the brunt of enforcement when we, when we kind of, um, have these laws and ordinances, um, and, um, and, and, you know, it's not, (laughs) not surprising, but, uh, you know, mostly it's marginalized populations that bear the brunt of this, um, and, uh, um, the NYPD, um, uh, officers have said, you know, uh, in numerous places that, you know, there's no. It's illegal to have quotas, but they're you know, you know, encouraged to go go get numbers, and so, uh, and that they, the officers have admitted that the easiest people to get get numbers off of are marginalized populations. So, um, when we're looking at Vision Zero and we're looking at how to uh, reduce uh, car violence, and we look at enforcement as one of the tactics to do so, then who's going to bear the brunt of that? And it's uh, often marginalized populations. There's been a couple stories in my news feed on Facebook this week that I that I think are are relevant. You know, one had to do with uh, you know an African American man in Dallas, Texas, who a couple of years ago was issued a citation for not wearing a helmet riding his bike, even though that wasn't an actual law in Dallas. Um, it had it had been you know in the, in the last ten years it had been repealed and it was no longer you know but he had been targeted by police and had been issued this citation. And he didn't show up, he didn't show up for his court appearance, you know, and therefore had a warrant against him and he got arrested and couldn't make bail. And, and, you know, so now, so now there's this whole thing where he owes a ton of money to the criminal justice system, uh, all for a crime that he didn't actually, you know, commit while riding a bicycle. And then I'm also reading, you know, about the Justice Department recent, you know, policy and statement about, uh, those who are arrested and don't have the financial means to to post a bail are not going to be required to actually do so as a result of uh you know the bail system just generally in this country being more of a debtor service than it is really in actually keeping criminals off the street or you know helping to avoid flight risks for somebody and i think this is a story that's also been playing out recently in memphis as i'm sort of been reading about some stories that have been happening back there but i think you know, my point is that all of this, I think, sort of points to ways in which bicycling advocacy can and has the ability to sort of broaden its reach into other subject areas. I think, I think this is a criticism, right, of, of bicycle advocacy is that it's very, it's very too narrowly focused on, you know, bicycle safety and stopping scoff laws and uh, doing this or doing that or getting money or getting your mayor to hold a bike to work day event. Uh, but it isn't looking at sort of the broader implications of their work on, on other societal issues. Um, do you, do you see, do you see sort of this work, you know, you know, again, sort of just thinking about the breadth of it, sort of, you know, having applications outside of bicycle advocacy? Well, I, uh, 
I, yeah, I think so. Um, I, um, I mean, I think it does need this uh, kind of intersectionality with other, um, uh, other traditionally different, you know, uh, arenas, uh, like you mentioned. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people are starting to look at uh, issues of like housing justice and affordable housing, um, gentrification, what have you. Um, I, I think we have to look at how that's connected with, uh, you know, where and how people can bike, um, you know, and, you know, we're, we're seeing people push out the, the, the urban centers, right. And urban cores. And, um, that's problematic. It's, um, that's, these are the areas that in terms of, uh, mobility, uh, it's the easiest places to, uh, bike and walk to the places you need for everyday life. And so, um, so it's, uh, um, uh, and I think when you get pushed to somewhere, uh, when you push out of these urban cores, um, and when you're, uh, and when you have to kind of live in a place that's car centric, um, and, uh, that's problematic for the wallet, right? And so, um, it's, uh, it's also a form of economic, uh, injustice. And it's, um, I mean, so I think, um, you can't pull apart, um, uh, what what is bike justice without looking at some of these other things? Um, and you, uh, a lot of people have argued that the the mass incarceration system um, is kind of an outgrowth of uh, of deindustrialization in the United States, where we've lost so many manufacturing jobs that um, uh, basically artificially our, our our employment numbers are artificially low uh, because of how many people are in prison. But it's also the prison system is also this like subsidized employment for a lot of rural areas. And so um, if, it's hard to kind of um, address those issues without kind of like looking at these larger structures as well because uh, they're all connected. Um, the, um, the, the need to police and to ticket and to, um, and to uh, incarcerate bodies uh, is, is not just simply, uh, you know, trying to... Um, uh, deal with uh, who's a good and bad cyclist. It's, you know, it's connected to these larger systems, and uh, I think that makes this work challenging, but also very interesting. Um, and I think one of the opportunities here is like for the bike movement is to you know form these uh, uh, multi-issue coalitions with other groups, um, the groups that they're not traditionally working with. And so, whether they're uh, immigrants or uh, um, different ethnic groups or or labor or or uh, you know. Um, uh, prison reform, um, you know, criminal justice reform folks. When you look across the country, are there any groups that are, you know, doing a really good job or attempting to do a good job at that kind of like intersectionality of, of those issues and including biking as one of those issues? Oh, uh, well, I know, the, uh, uh, you know, folks are trying to organize the, the untokening conference that's going to happen um, in, uh, in uh, November. Uh, I don't know if you've if you've uh, heard of that. Um, it's uh, I, I have not. Tell tell me about it. Oh, okay, it's very exciting actually. <laughs> um, I I have been uh, advising a little bit on the agenda as well, uh, but um, it's uh, it's a the, called the Untokening, <laughs> the Convening for Just Streets and Communities, and you know it's organized by a lot of uh, uh, bike equity folks. Uh, you know, Donia Lugo, Naomi Donor, and. Uh, 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 Caroline Strapansky and, um, and a number of different folks. Um, so, uh, it's going to be, uh, a one day kind of, uh, event after the, uh, facing the race conference in Atlanta. 
Uh, it's uh, November 13th, uh, and they just uh, uh, came out with the website this past week for it. So it's basically www.untokening.org. Uh, and so basically it's to try to um, uh, kind of bring together um, you know, people working on uh, bicycle and equity and talk a lot through these issues, try to come up with different um, uh, working documents and, and strategies for how to kind of tackle these kinds of issues. Um, uh, how to uh, uh, you know share documents that that we all can agree upon um, goals uh, uh, strategies um, and ways to kind of maybe even connect and uh, and uh, and uh, kind of um, uh, kind of continue building this national movement towards uh, uh, on these issues. So, um, but yeah, if, if you haven't seen it, it's a it's a great website that just came out and. Um, still working on, on, on things, but, uh, it looks like it's going to be very exciting. Yeah. I just saw the announcement this week and mm-hmm. unfortunately I, I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm not available that day. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, it's just a one day thing. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll call Naomi and just, uh, make sure that we get the highlights, Sarah, if you're, <laughs> if you're not able to make it either, but it might be easier yeah, for no, you. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's going to be in Atlanta. So just a quick, uh, jaunt over. Oh, yeah, Totally. Maybe a fun weekend in Atlanta. Always. <laughs> so let's talk basketball for a few minutes because <laughs> uh, I think we have to. So first I need to know, you know, are you a fan of all basketball or college professional NBA, Olympic uh, basketball? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more NBA. Um, I, uh, um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I'm a big uh, Golden State Warriors oh, fan. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 Can we get a historical record of your fandom? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I grew up there, so you know, yeah. I was, yeah, you know, I was there for the good old, um, you know, Mitch <laughs> and Chris Mullen, you know, Tim Hardaway years, and yeah. so uh, run TMC, so great, uh, and so uh, and you know, it was you know many years in the wilderness. You know, we we kind of sucked for many years. So uh, it was, uh, it's been the last couple years have been super fun with, uh, you know, with Steph Curry and what have you, sir. So. Yeah, um, yeah. Have you been able to catch some of the games? Oh yeah, for sure. uh, well, not in person, but you know, um, uh, it's uh, it's been super fun to watch. It's kind of out of nowhere a little bit too, um, and so um, uh, it, it you know, of course losing losing this year uh, wasn't <laughs> wasn't wasn't great. So yeah, uh, but you know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad LeBron brought a championship to Cleveland. You know. <laughs> That's, that's the consolation prize. That's the consolation. <laughs> we're going to let them have this one. Uh, that's great. You know, I, I'm also a fan of the NBA basketball. Um, truthfully, college basketball puts me to sleep, um, and I just, I just can't, uh, I just can't hang with it. Uh, but you know, Sarah and I are Memphis Grizzly fans mm-hmm. um, because we have to be um, being, <laughs> being from Memphis. Um, I'm a Memphis Grizzly fan who knows absolutely nothing about basketball, but I'm a fan nonetheless. <laughs> That's kind of the way we roll in Memphis. Um, yes, I mean this going to be this year is going to be kind of crazy, don't you think? This this upcoming season. Uh, I, I think so. I mean, I mean the whole the whole um, dialogue is around uh, the with the Warriors super team and how everybody's jealous of that. So <laughs> we'll see how that all shakes out. Uh, but I, I think it'll be. I mean, I I think. The the you know it's it's a it's super entertaining and the playoffs are always fun so um, yeah um, what what how is Memphis going to be this year? 
Who knows? I mean, we've got a new coach, uh, a bunch of new players, but also a bunch of returning players. So, you know, like Mike Conley, the point guard, and Marcus All, you know, our big center, are both returning. And Zach Randolph, you know, you, you can always sort of count on a double double out of Zach Randolph every game. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to see, but there's, there's a good mix of like veterans and new guys, I think, on, on Memphis, and we have a brand new coach. And so, it's going to be interesting to see how all that sort of gels. Um, you know, interestingly enough, there's a, um, there's a guy that was, uh, who played for the University of Memphis basketball team who's just been added to the Grizzlies roster. And I think that, I think that's a first for the Memphis Grizzlies, having sort of like a local, you know, college product play for the professional team in the same city. Mm. And Memphis is kind of a basketball crazed town. You know, the, everything kind of in, in the sports arena kind of revolves around basketball, whether that's, whether that's the University of Memphis or the Grizzlies. And so I don't know. I think it's going to be really interesting to sort of see, you know, like a homegrown guy take the court for, mm-hmm. for his professional team. I'm, I'm kind of interested to, to understand, you know, the way that the fans sort of react to that and, you know, embrace that. Cause I'm, I can't imagine it going any other way than sort of an enthusiastic embrace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always good to see the you know, hometown, hometown guys, you know? Yeah. Who are, yeah. Um, all about the place too, right? The, the city and, yeah. uh, you know, and embody it. So, yeah. And, you know, the Grizzlies have been like playoff contenders for the last, you know, five or six seasons. And so that's been fun. We made it, you know, to the Western Conference Finals one year. Um, mm-hmm. didn't make it through. We, you know, we faced the, we faced the Warriors in recent years in the playoffs. <laughs> um, I would not, I don't think we won either of the series in the last two, but I think we definitely put the Warriors through some paces, um, for some of those. Definitely had to go to game, you know, five, six or seven to, to sort of get through some of that. So, I know. I feel. I feel good about it. Um, it's. It's. Uh, the, the Grizzlies are a team that like you feel good about rooting for. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. And um, you know, I. I, I think uh, I, next year will be interesting rooting for the Warriors Super Team because I. I haven't really have been in that position with the Warriors. <laughs> before, so. uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's hating on them, so you know, I, I, it'll be fun. Um, you know, and. Uh, I, I certainly have, uh, admired Kevin Durant playing for, the, uh, for Oklahoma City, so it'll be yeah. fun with the Warriors, so. Yeah, no, I think it'll be, it'll be good. You know, and that series, that series, that Warriors Thunder series just this past playoffs was great. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Right? <laughs> I mean, it, it might have been like the best series of the entire playoffs. Oh, definitely. Uh, including, including the final against Cleveland. And, you know, I, it's sort of amazing to think of like two teams going like head to head like that, you know, with such stars and then like being like, well, you know what? Why don't we just take all those really great guys and just put them on one and one team? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, it's the NBA's fault. Uh, I, 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 I don't really get this whole uh, demonization of Kevin Durant. Um, uh, it's uh, the NBA caps, the, the maximum salary that a player can get at some like 30% of the salary cap. Mm-hmm. And so, someone like LeBron James or Kevin Durant, they're worth way more than that. You know? so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, if you don't give them that uh, incentive, then where are they gonna? Who are they gonna sign with? They're gonna, they're gonna they get huge shoe endorsements, so um, they're gonna sign with someone that they're gonna win championships with. So, um, I, I, I mean, you know, when they're, you know, why call them free agents? They can't make that decision either. So, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Sarah. 
<laughs> oh, it's okay. I mean, this is, this is water this is, cooler conversation here that I don't participate in in Memphis, so I can listen. Well, I'm I mean, learning. I'm learning. If you want to bring an equity perspective, and it, um, people don't have any problems with uh, kind of privileged GMs and owners making these kinds of decisions for, for mostly black athletes, and they get really upset when uh, black athletes make their own decisions. There you go. We should have a <laughs> we should have an equity conversation around professional sports one time. Oh, just, just tons. <laughs> Football is so problematic, and I love it at the same. Time. <laughs> we we only have an hour long podcast. <laughs> There's no not enough time. There's not enough time in the world. Um, I'm sorry, Sarah. Sarah just gets bombarded by soccer and basketball talk, and uh, mm-hmm. I apologize. Sorry, I'm patient. Thanks. <laughs> So, so I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, as you're a, a PhD candidate, what's what's sort of on the horizon for you? I mean, I assume you're, you know, you're going to finish that someday. May, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but you know, like, you know, so what, what's your? I mean, are you going to be like going into sort of academia? Do you think, or is there a is there a more sort of a practical application that you're that you're sort of thinking about down the road? Well, uh, I think ideally, I'd like to go to academia. I um, I've been thinking that a lot about that as I'm kind of you know, going into my dissertation phase. Um, uh, and so, I, you know, I, I'd like to go into academia. And I, um, I think um, that is a criticism of academia is um, being a little bit um, insulated and not practical enough, you know. And so, and I, I've been trying to explore that a little bit with this project right now is uh, we're, we're taking um, uh, an approach of participatory action research. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Uh, I am. I lived it for a couple of years in grad school. Okay. <laughs> but you should tell us for our listeners uh, that, that aren't aware of it. Uh, it's really, really tough. And so, but it's basically this idea that um, uh, knowledge, uh, the production of knowledge is not um, done equitably. It's, you know, uh, usually privileged folks producing knowledge. And so one way to kind of um, upend that is to, produce knowledge in a participatory democratic way. And so, for example, if we're talking about food delivery cyclists, uh, they should be involved in the creation of the project. They should be involved in uh, the determination of questions. They should be involved in how we do our methods, um, in analysis, in interpretation. So basically, it's saying like those who are live the phenomenon have an intimate sort of knowledge about that experience and that um, they're the best um, people. They offer a unique and um, often um, uh, often uh, ignored perspective in designing the research and, uh, and what it means. Uh, and so um, uh, it's tough because it requires um, a lot of process and, and teamwork and time and patience and building a relationship. But uh, I think um, it leads to um, kind of these rich outcomes uh, about perspectives and experiences that, um, like, uh, someone like me who who's never worked a day of food delivery in my life wouldn't have about about that experience. So, yes, yeah, Sarah, the 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 work that was done in South Memphis with Roshan and the South Memphis community to create that neighborhood revitalization mm-hmm. action plan that that was done in the framework of participatory action research where, you know, where the community members were hosting the meetings that they were coming, right. they were de- developing their outcomes. Um, and ultimately, you know, were the ones who, you know, took the the planning process to council to sort of get adopted there. And it's, it's a really, I think, I think you're right though. I mean, the, 
the, the complications with doing that, right? I think, I think if you asked any like city planner, they would all say, we would love to do that. Uh, but you know, it's, it's tough. It, it is not a, it is not a fast process. Number one, <laughs> right? It's, it's very slow. Uh, just because of the amount of like time and energy that has to be gone into, you know, sort of reaching everybody. I, I can remember, you know, spending Saturdays every single Saturday morning, you know, knocking on doors in the community and, you know, inviting people to meetings and doing surveys with them and, you know, just Saturday after Saturday mm-hmm. after Saturday. And then, you know, you would, you would reach, you know, you'd knock on a thousand doors and have, you know, 40 people show up to your meeting. You're like, all right, right. All right that was successful. Let's get the, uh, let's get the other, you know, 960 people that we knocked on their doors uh, to the next meeting. So you do it all over again and, and you, you would do it so iteratively just to try to make sure that you were covering all of your bases throughout that process. And so, you know, one of the interesting things I think about as, as I think about that experience, sort of doing that and sort of the real authenticity of that, of that plot, that, of that process was that, that it was really sort of the people creating it. Mm-hmm. And I often get asked, you know, and I think there's, there's a, there's a, there's a need throughout this country and maybe internationally as well, right? But we, we want to see change happen quickly, right? We mm-hmm. want, there's, there's a, there's a speed at which an acceleration by which we want to, we want to see change happen. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions about, you know, can you be authentic, but also act, act in a very, you know, ex, expedited manner? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that, that the two are necessarily, incongruent, but there are some questions that have to be asked along the way. And some things, some things I think just take time, right? Like building relationships with, with community leaders. Um, there was always this story and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you sort of, you know, provide a little commentary on, on all of that. But there's a story in Memphis where there's a, there is a narrative that exists that Memphis went through a very rapid, um, a very rapid change for bicycling, right? That, you know, there was a, there was a mayor that was hired, uh, that was hired, who was elected in 2009. He brought in sort of a new age of urbanism and allowed bicycling stuff to happen very quickly. And some of that is true to like, you know, a certain extent, but the more that I look back on that experience, I realize that it, that was a great catalyst for moving some things forward that were kind of stuck, but there was, there was 10 years of advocacy and relationship building that sort of mm-hmm. occurred before that. That doesn't, it doesn't make the headlines it, but I, the more that I sort of look back on my experience in Memphis, I realized that the 10 years I spent working in the community bike shop were really powerful and impactful mm-hmm. in terms of thinking about how once we had the sort of the green light to really sort of make a transformation for bicycling, that those relationships were the basis by which we were able to actually make the change very quickly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I mean, I think that's the hard part about this work um, is that we want rapid change, as you mentioned. Um, and it's relationship building just takes time. It takes years. It takes uh, repeated kind of, um, you know, contact and um, conversations and lunches and dinners and you know, uh, you know, breaking bread together and it uh, it's it's about building trust and um, that I think that's the hard thing is we have um, a sort of kind of um, systems in which we're constantly told to be efficient and quick and speedy with our 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 deliverables and some of this stuff just is unpredictable. It may you know, the outcomes might emerge years, 10, 20 years from now, right? Um, that's kind of nature of relationship building, but it's also what may, helps 
grease the wheels when you need to get things done. You know, you can't do these projects without those relationships. Um, and so, um, and that's, you know, what we're doing right now. It's, uh, and uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, you, uh, what, what do you experience as well in Memphis? Doe, it's been a real pleasure having you today. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. This was enlightening. This was really great. You know, Sarah, now that I'm thinking back on it, you know, Doe actually reached out to us on Twitter. Ah. He was like, he was a, he was a Twitter guy. And, uh, that's how we got him. You know, Naomi hooked us up through him through Twitter and got awesome. him on the, got him on the show. We actually scheduled this a really long time ago. So I'm glad, I'm glad we were finally able to actually, <laughs> uh, get it to happen. The summer schedule was kind of crazy. Oh, that's what happens this summer, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, this was great, though. I've been following your, your work with the public bike project and really think it's just like a fa- fantastic kind of lens to view on individuals that we don't necessarily think of in our everyday life. So I really appreciate the work that y'all are doing and look forward to following you guys along the way. Well, thanks for having me on. I, uh, it, was, it was really wonderful. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.